If you had your Bible open, you may have noticed that we've reached uh, the final verse of Philippians. We started Philippians uh, the beginning of February, so we've spent uh, three months in this book now. And, of course, uh, in the course of things, uh, some of the plans have changed. Uh, from the beginning, I had a certain number of sermons planned with a certain breakdown of all the text. The first few I knew were pretty set in stone because I had studied them, and then as time went on, things kind of changed. And chapter 4, which I planned on preaching, I think, in five or six sermons, is now technically three, uh, with the first verse of it being on the last part of chapter 3. So plans change, and maybe if you're perceptive, you even noticed one week in which the weekly update email said one biblical text, and then, the week, and then that Sunday there was a different one. Now, I wouldn't expect you to notice that, uh, but plans do change a little bit. And in this time, I hope you've enjoyed our study in Philippians. I know I have. I've, I've been richly, or, or, sorry, richly blessed uh, studying and, and preaching this book. In fact, although I had felt for a while this book was perhaps one that our church needed to hear from, uh, even, even in the fall, having thought about it, I think there is even more, perhaps, relevant for our church uh, than I had expected from the beginning. And throughout this work, we've seen uh, just a beautiful letter from Paul, all crouched within friendship and joy uh, for the church in, in the city of Philippi. You know, this, this book is most famous, perhaps, in some ways, uh, for, the, for a few verses in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, it says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And if you've had many missionaries visit your church over the years or churches you've attended before, you probably have heard that verse, those verses from them, either in their prayers or just them making that comment to you or maybe even preaching a sermon with those verses in it. If you've had many preachers return after having pastored in a church and then returned to visit later, they've probably quoted or read or even preached from those words. So they're very famous. And so we kind of color our reading, it seems, of Philippians, I think, with those verses. We also color it not just with the thankfulness Paul has for this joy, or church and the rejoicing he has for the church, but we also color it with the great theme of humility from Christ. Of course, Philippians chapter 2 has that great section reflecting on the glories of Christ, but also reflecting on the humility of Christ. That he was the eternal son who humbled himself taking on the form of a human being, taking on the form of a servant, and, and again, humbling himself to obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross, and, and then being exalted by God so that every, at every knee and every tongue shall bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's, it's some of that, that idea of humility and, and Christ-like humility that colors our reading of this letter. Perhaps it's the unity that is running throughout Paul's continual call, not just to be humble, as if humility is just good for yourself, but be humble so that you are willing to serve with the other people in the church, to be family members in the church with them. And we also see, of course, one of the themes that gets ignored sometimes because of the greatness of the others is the theme of suffering. As Paul writes, he is in a prison, in chains, having gone through a life that was full of suffering so far, especially once he became a Christian. In fact, a lot of Paul's suffering doesn't come from the fact that he used to be a sinner. It comes from the fact that he stopped being simply a sinner and became 
a follower of Christ. Most of his suffering actually came from being a follower of Christ rather than his life getting easier. And there's also suffering going on in the church in Philippi. But here we have a, a passage this morning that Paul concludes his letter with, in which perhaps the most famous verse in all the Philippians is written, and perhaps among the most famous verses of all of the New Testament and all of the Bible is written. Of course, that's Philippians 4, chapter, sorry, Philippians 4 verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Or some translations, or some people will say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But this morning we see that Paul, his main point isn't about our abilities. His main point is about our contentment in Christ. And we'll see as we walk through this passage that we can only find true contentment in this life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can only find true contentment in Christ. So if you look at verses 10 through 12, Paul is saying, He rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need. Now you can imagine the, the Philippian church probably assembled in a home, having heard that Paul is well, having sent one of their brothers, one of their church members, Epaphroditus, to Paul to care for him, to deliver a gift to him. And now they've been listening to this letter being read, probably from that same brother, Epaphroditus, and sitting in this room together, they're hearing him lead, read this letter, and in his reading of it, they notice that they may be so focused on the letter, they can't think of anything else, but perhaps some of those Philippians are wondering, you know, we just sent Paul this great gift, and he really hasn't mentioned it a whole lot. Sure, he thanked God for every remembrance of us because of our partnership in the gospel. He, he mentions us being partners. He mentions how much he's happy for us. But he's never just stopped and said, hey, by the way, thanks for this thing that you sent. Or, hey, that really helped me out, or that really made me happy. But here at the very end, as if to make sure they understand that he is grateful, Paul wants them to know that he rejoices in the Lord greatly, that they have revived their concern for him. Revived their concern for him. Now, Paul isn't talking about a church that stopped caring about him and then decided to start caring about him again. In fact, reading Philippians, reading Acts chapter 16, we see that the church in Philippi cared for Paul deeply. They were immensely grateful for Paul because they saw Paul as the instrument God used, as the person God used to preach the gospel to them so that they might believe. So they see Paul in some ways almost as a lowercase f father figure. They saw Paul as the person who had brought the gospel to them. Not that they believed it because of Paul or because of his abilities to persuade. Not that they believed it because he was so rhetorically gifted or because he was such an appealing person or attractive person. 
But they just were thankful for Paul because Paul was being faithful to God, going about God's work, preaching the gospel to all people, and preaching the gospel not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. So they're thankful for him, to the point that immediately, once he moves from their city to another, which was Thessalonica, they already were sending him gifts. They did not want Paul to go without their support. And then as he continued throughout Macedonia, they were the only church, he says, that partnered with him in giving and receiving. They were the only church to continually provide for Paul, yet they stopped at some point. Now, based on this church and based on what we know and what we know from Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he mentions the church in Philippi, the historians will tell us, and and it seems like they're right based on everything we read in Scripture, that what's going on here is that they found out that Paul was missing in action. And, And it wasn't clear that they even knew whether he was alive. It may very well be that they thought he was dead. And so why did they stop sending support? Well, they weren't going to send support to a dead man or a man with no address. And so they had stopped sending him anything. But then they find out that Paul is indeed alive and he is in Rome. And so they revive their concern for him, immediately sending him not just financial support, not just gifts to go with it, but also one of their church members so that when he arrives, not only can he give these gifts to Paul, but the expectation was this brother in Christ, Epaphroditus, was to stay there and care for Paul to make sure all his needs were met. Now Paul at that time says, I've got someone here, I've got Timothy with me, I need him with me, and he's caring for me, and there's others caring for me in Rome. I'm going to send you back, this member of the church in Philippi, Epaphroditus, I'm going to send him back to you all, because you all need him. And he needs to deliver this letter to you, because you need to know how thankful I am for you, how I rejoice in you, but also you need some correction on some things that I've heard about. Despite this being one of the more positive letters in our New Testament, written by Paul, perhaps only being competed with by the letter to the Thessalonians, the first one. It's also a letter where Paul is addressing issues. It's not like this was just a perfect church. And it's very encouraging to know that Paul never wrote letters to perfect churches, and and he couldn't have if he wanted to. Because if you haven't figured out what I'm getting at at this point, there's not such a thing as a perfect church. Because God fills his church with who? People. And who are people but sinners? Sinners. Sinners desperately in need of a Savior. And so there's no such thing as a perfect church. There's only a perfect Savior. And that's who the church gathers to worship. I recently saw a Facebook post, and maybe you saw the same one, that someone had shared, saying something along the lines of, if the church in America today, or sorry, if Paul were alive today, he would certainly be sending a letter to the churches in America. I actually thought it was really clever what someone commented because I thought it was astoundingly true. They said Paul already did. He wrote 13. The problem in our churches today, and this is almost a side note on this entire sermon, is we, I really do believe, do not truly trust and believe in the authority of God's word. Such that we don't realize that these letters weren't just written to particular churches, but being inspired by God, they were written to every church. So that, such that there's not a church in America that does not have a letter written by Paul. And, and to be clear, not just a letter written by Paul, but one inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
such that there's not just a letter to the Americans, there's a letter to the Romans, there's two letters to the Corinthians, there's a letter to the Galatians, there's a letter to the Ephesians, there's a letter to the Philippians and the Colossians, there's two letters to the Thessalonians, there's a letter to Philemon, who's just one guy, there's a letter to Titus in First and Second Timothy, all those letters written to people in the church. There, there are many letters, there's not just one, and there's not a need for another one, to be very clear. There certainly is. 13 letters written by Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit for our churches today. And the good thing is, for the last three months, we spent quite a bit of time in one of them. Not just simply because we want to know what Paul said to the Philippians, but because we want to know what God is saying to us today. And so in this letter, Paul is thanking them for a gift. It's a particular, particular moment in history However, he's teaching them a lesson in doing so. Looking at verses 11 and 12, he's thankful that they were concerned for him. And he's, he's grateful for that. He's rejoicing that. But he wants to be clear in verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul's not content to let them think that the only thing he wants from them is financial gifts. He's not content for them to think that their relationship is primarily just because he's getting gifts. He wants it to be clear that he's actually being well taken care of. Is he in prison? Yes, very much so. Is he in chains? Very much so. Is he in going through suffering? Very much so. But he's not in need. Not in the way you and I would think about. Why? Because he's content. He says in verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Is this not something that we need to hear this morning? Many of us, I'm sure, feel very discontent in life, feel very dissatisfied with circumstances, whether it's our health, whether it's our job, whether it's our housing situation or lack thereof, whether it's our relationship or our family or our extended family, whatever it is, our friendships, our coworkers, our neighbors, we are in danger, I think, every day of being extremely discontent people. Yet Paul this morning is telling us, not just the church in Philippi 1900 years ago, but he's telling us this morning the secret of contentment. And he wants to make clear what a lot of people get wrong. Contentment isn't a state you enter into by getting everything in your life just the way it ought to be. Everything in its place and a place for everything. I'm content now. My 401k is well funded. My bills are less than my income. Everything is set up. Haven't had a death in the family in a while. Haven't had any health problems to speak of. The last time I went to the doctor, he said all my charts were great. It's not like all of those things have to be in place such that we go, I guess I am content. My goodness. The Lord has been so kind to me, hasn't he? No, Paul is saying that in any 
and every circumstance, the secret of contentment is to find our contentment not in our circumstances. For if we start to focus on our changing circumstances, contentment will continually elude us. We will never find a place where we are content. Nothing will ever be well-established and secure enough that you and I, on our own ability and our own emotions, are going to find contentment in any of those things. Even if, even if we get to a point that all of those things are neutral or positive, it's very easy, and you might know this, that once you have what you need, you begin to want more. Once you have plenty, you begin to want more. The secret of contentment isn't to get well-established. If it were, then there would be no musicians writing songs complaining about how wealthy they are and how unhappy they are. You, you all know what I'm speaking of. The first album is the one where you talk about how poor you were and your poor upbringing. The second album is the one where you complain about how dissatisfying your life is now that you go on tour all the time and have lots of money. Uh, I, I think of that song, and I can't remember the singer's name, but if you know the Eagles, you know him. And I don't know why I'm referencing the Eagles in a sermon, so you can all forgive me later. Uh, I can't think of his name at the moment, but he, he, in his solo career, he came out with that song, Life's Been Good to Me So Far. Yeah, Jed's over there. He knows what I'm talking about. And he says, uh, I have a mansion. They tell me it's nice. Ain't ever been there. You know, he's describing all of this wealth but as we all know, that's simply just not enough. So what's the secret of contentment then? Not to, not to depend on our changing circumstances, but simply, simply this, to rely on Christ. Look at verse 13. Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You've surely seen that verse before. You may have even seen it on wristbands or on helmets or wherever. It's a very popular verse among athletes, as you know, and in many other situations you may have heard it. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's remember who is writing this verse and when they were writing it. It was a guy named Paul. If you don't know Paul, his life in every worldly way was going well. He had a great resume. He had a great upbringing. He had a great career. He was zealous for what he was doing. He was passionate about it. And then everything went upside down when he encountered the risen Christ. And in that encounter, he was told that he was a persecutor of Christ because he was persecuting the church. And that he was to repent and believe and to change his life such that now he was to be called not to the Jews, but specifically to the Gentiles. And then his life, and again, every worldly way, fell to pieces. I mean, if they made a documentary about Paul and they took out as much of the religious and spirituality of it as they possibly could, you know what you would end up with? A disaster story. Because coming to Christ didn't fix Paul's problems. In fact, it created more than it ever could have fixed. Paul went to be a man who was beaten and run out of towns. Not just beaten, but stoned to death. And if you don't know, stoning wasn't for the purpose of just shaming you or, or making you get a bunch of bruises. Stoning you was to kill you, and he was left for dead at least once that we know of. Paul was shipwrecked. Paul was bitten by a poisonous snake. Paul was taken and imprisoned multiple times. And all of this, not just because it was fun, 
Not because he wanted to, because he thought it would bring him contentment or joy or happiness. Not because it was the thing that was going to get him to a place in life. You know, some of you, you do that drudgery because you know it's going to get you in a place that's better off. That's not what Paul was doing. He was undergoing all of this in pursuit of following Christ and following his calling in Christ. So when Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, do you really think he's talking about a football game? Honestly. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong for the football players to put that on their helmets. I'm just saying, do you really think that's what Paul was talking about? Do you really think he was saying, yeah, I can do all things. I can win any match. I can get any raise. I can find treasures in this world. No, Paul is saying, I can be, do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's talking about contentment. He's saying, I can endure all things because I am strengthened by the Lord. Listen, it was, if it was up to the strength of Paul, he would have given in and quit years ago at this point. It wouldn't have taken long at all for Paul to turn around and say, this really isn't worth it. I'm just going to go back to Jerusalem, or I'm just going to go back to Tarsus, his hometown. I'm just going to go back and do that thing. This really isn't worth it. But he endures again and again and again and again. And what does Paul say his secret is? Not that he had an upbringing that caused him to be the kind of person who had grit, who would endure things. It wasn't because he was well well trained such that he could go through anything it was simply this he says i can do all things through him who strengthens me not through my own strength not by the strength of my friends not by the strength of my neighbors but by him who strengthens me the lord jesus christ it is only by him through the power of his spirit that paul is able to do all things And again, that all things isn't that he could fly or that he could breathe underwater or that he could do something miraculous, although Paul did that occasionally. It was that he could do all things in the sense of enduring all things and living through all things and doing all things unto the Lord. It was in living for Christ that Paul was brought into situations where he had to be able to endure. It strikes me that for many of our lives, including my own, at least in my earliest part of my life, there was still a time where culturally, at least where I was from and where you all have been from, where it was easier to be a Christian than not to be one. There's probably a time in many of our lives in which it was easier to be a Christian than not to be one. Now, I don't mean in terms of your own battle with sin. I don't mean in terms of your your own life, anything like that. I'm just saying culturally, it was probably easier to be a Christian, to attend a church, than it is today, because today it is no longer advantageous for any of us to be here this morning. From a worldly perspective, to be clear. There is no worldly advantage to being here this morning. Just ask yourself, if you're still in your career, does my boss care that I'm here this morning? Do my employees care that I'm here this morning? Do my clients care that I'm here this morning? Does my neighbor care that I'm here this morning? Do my family members? Okay, well, some of you have that, maybe. There's no longer an advantage to being a Christian. And you know what? Paul would have told you all that from the beginning if y'all would have just been reading and listening to him. 
Because Paul knows there is no worldly advantage to being a Christian. But you know what there is? There is every, every heavenly advantage to being a Christian. There is every spiritual advantage. There is every advantage when it comes to the standard of God. Because there is no other name than the name of Christ in which we can have our sins forgiven. There is no other name than the name of Christ in which we can be strengthened by God. There is no other name by the name of Christ in which we can pray and have those prayers answered by God. There is no other name than that of Christ. And so, to be honest with you, there should be no other name that we are willing to bear as much as we are the name of Christian. True contentment relies not on our changing circumstances, which change as the culture changes, as our cities change, as our towns change, as our lives change, as we grow and as we differ, but true contentment relies on Christ. And this should be no surprise to us if, you've, if you know Hebrews 13, where it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Our changing circumstances will not lead to contentment, but our unchanging Savior, relying on Him very well, will. So what does this true contentment look like in the life of a Christian? Well, in verses 14 through 20, we get a picture that the truly content will trust God to provide. So I want you to see two things as I read through this again. Notice how Paul is trusting in God's provision And notice how, in a way, the Philippians are as well. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift. But I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. If you go and read the letter to the Corinthians... Paul mentions the church in Philippi as having sent him gifts. But he also notes that they were not a wealthy church. They were not well-to-do. The fact that they sent him gifts were truly because they wanted to honor him. They wanted to give out of their poverty to Paul. And giving out of their poverty, they advanced the gospel through the work of Paul. Notice this. They didn't even allow, whether they had wealth or whether they were in poverty to affect whether they were going to give Paul a gift. They were going to do it. However much, who knows? But they were going to do it. The Philippians, although they may not have known it, were displaying an attribute of the truly content, which is that they will trust the provision of God. The truly content will trust the provision of God, knowing that our Lord works all things for the good of those who love him. Now, that may not be that we get every worldly thing we want. I'll remind you that Paul is talking about the fact that he's content despite not having everything he needs. And to be clear this morning, again, just for a little context, perhaps the poorest person in the United States, perhaps, 
is well, more well off than many of the people alive in Paul's time. Perhaps the poorest person in our country is more well off than many of the people who've lived in history. And you have a hard time believing that until you realize a few things. Think about the kings at the time of of Paul. You know what they really liked? They really liked having an extra house or some servants or some gold stacked up. Now, you may not have those things, but you know what you have that they don't have? Indoor plumbing, for one. Access to clean water. And for many of us, most of the time, hot water as well. Access to food. And if you don't have food growing in your backyard or being bought at the store, there are plenty of places to go to get food. The truth is, longer table here at our church is just one of the many in our area that you can go and get food any day of the week. The reality is, we are much more well cared for even among the poorest of us in our country. And it would, really, it would really take a particular case for someone to walk in this door and me to say that there, that would not be true of everyone in this room, that we are far more well off. I remember one time in my, one of my courses at OBU, one of the professors, we were reading the Iliad, which is one of Homer's uh, poems, and it's the one about Achilles and Troy and all of that. And at some point, the king gifts Achilles, if I remember correctly, I didn't go check this, so I may be wrong, but he gifts him like, it's something like 10 or 20 golden spigots, you know, to like roast meat with. And the teacher pointed out to us, can you imagine living in a culture where one of the best things you could get is that? That was like the best thing the king had to offer Achilles. That was the best thing. Not like a thing. Not one of the things, but that was like one of the best things the king could offer him. The reality is we live in an entirely different world. If you're lower middle class, you are probably richer, not just than the majority of the world in our country or in our world right now, but richer than the majority of nation leaders, kings and emperors in the past. Sure, they own more land and had more servants. But they just simply didn't have the access to all the things you do. I say all this for this reason. Paul, who lived in this culture and was suffering and did have need and wasn't just hungry because he missed a meal, wasn't just hungry because he missed a day's worth of meals, but hungry because he was missing many days worth of meals when he was hungry. That guy said he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. That guy said, I know the secret of contentment. Now here's my question to you. Have all the luxuries in your life, have all the things you have access to, not because you're wealthy, but because you just live here in a time in which Everyone's wealthy to some extent. Do you know the secret of contentment? Or have all of those things actually kept you from being content? Is your concept of being brought low the same as Paul's? Or is your being brought low the same as his abounding? Is your having need the same as him as having plenty? And you want to think that you might know contentment better than him, yet he knows the secret, which is trusting in Christ, relying on Christ, and trusting God to provide for his needs. You think of Jesus talking about the sparrows or the flowers, you know, they they don't worry about their clothing, they don't worry about their food, they don't worry about 
what they are to drink, but God provides for them. And yet how much more important are you than flowers and sparrows? Yet do we actually trust in our own hearts that God will provide for us? Are we really willing to take risk with our lives and our livelihood for the sake of Christ and doing ministry in this world and reaching the lost? If the one thing continually on our mind is how we're going to pay our next bill, or the one thing continually on our mind is how are we going to earn more before we retire? Are we truly trusting Christ to provide? Are we truly content, or can we ever be? As long as we keep playing this game where contentment relies on our circumstances rather than our Christ. Finally, in verses 20 through 23, we see that the truly content, they not only trust God, but they will receive and spread Christ's grace. This isn't just true for the truly content, those who are in Christ. It's true for everyone in Christ, whether they feel content at the moment or not. Paul tells them, this is his final words to them, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Greet, that's a command, every saint, that's all of those who are saved, all of those in Christ, all of those who are being made holy by Christ's work, all of those who attend church and believe the stuff that they're there for, greet every saint, not just some of them, all of them, in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. So, okay, we're sending you greetings. Then he says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, we've mentioned this before, but again, the Philippians are in a culture where they are being told that Caesar is Lord, and they are supposed to be, and hopefully are, and it seems to be, believing that instead of Caesar being Lord, that Christ is Lord. And yet there are saints in Rome. They're a Roman colony. It's already amazing to them, I'm sure, that there are people worshiping Jesus Christ as Lord in Rome. That's Caesar's city. But more so, Paul says, there are saints not just in this city, not just in these prisons. There are saints in Caesar's household. Probably referring, for the most part, to slaves in Caesar's household. And what we might consider servants, indentured servants. But it also may be the case that there were others in Caesar's household. What an encouragement it would be to that church in a time and in a place in which they thought that they struggled day by day to worship Christ as Lord in a culture that said Caesar is Lord. And to know that there are people in Caesar's household who worship not Caesar, but Christ. Not just to know that Caesar isn't truly Lord if there are people who are right there next to him willing to say that he's not. But also knowing that there are people who have the gumption and the boldness to actually say out loud that Christ is Lord while living under Caesar's household. You can imagine that despite their circumstances, whatever they may be, those in Caesar's household were truly content people. Because they were willing to greet the church in Philippi, they were willing to greet Paul, they were willing to greet anyone and spread the grace of God to anyone, even while they lived in this household. And then he says, the grace of the Lord, Paul's final words to the Philippians, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And so we see that the truly content receive 
and spread Christ's grace through greeting and through giving the grace to one another. God gives us grace primarily when he gives us what we do not deserve, which is Christ. When he gives us the blessings and the inheritance of knowing Christ. That's God's grace to us. What does it look like for us as church members to give grace to one another? To give them that which they do not deserve. To give them our prayers. To give them our love. To give them our respect. To give them our time and attention. To give them our care. To bear their burdens with them. To honor them. To welcome them. To greet them. To gather with them. To spur them on to love and good works. What does it look like to give what other sinners do not deserve to them like God gives us Jesus? I don't know that we could possibly reach it if we wanted to, but we sure ought to try. Because if we don't aim for giving people grace like God gives us grace in Christ, then we will never give anyone anything, and we will certainly not be fulfilling Paul's commands that we owe our church members. And the truly content are not going to be concerned about giving another church member something. They're not going to be concerned about the fact that they may not get their own way. They will simply be content whether they have plenty, whether they have nothing, whether they have what they want from a church or they don't have what they want from a church. They will simply be content. Why? Because contentment does not depend on our changing circumstances. It simply depends on the Lord Jesus Christ. And until we get that straight in our own hearts and minds, I don't know how we can proceed in this life. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray.